Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And this episode is actually the first of what I'm hoping is going to be at least three discussions over the next couple of months, which are really going to look at the impact of the energy crisis on energy transition and, and decarbonisation for, for industrials. And today I'm joined by someone who's been here before. So um, some of you may know him, some of you may not. His name is Ben Moons. He's Managing Director of Sustainability Solutions for NG Impact, part of the bigger NG organisation. And Ben, why don't you just, for those who haven't met you or haven't heard the previous podcast we did, um, why don't you give a little intro to, to you and, and how you've arrived at this kind of point in time working on these issues? Hello, Alexia. Thank you for having me back uh, on the podcast. So uh, indeed, as you know, NG Impact, we, uh, we are a global organization as part of the NG Group uh, who has a single purpose, and that's helping our clients reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so from that role, of course, we uh, have privileged insights into how companies are preparing for the energy transition, how they ramp up for it, scale up, uh, how they you know, try to reduce, uh, remove hurdles uh, for uh, for getting it actually done. Um, and yeah, uh, from that position, we've uh, seen front row how uh, the energy crisis is, uh, is hitting some of our clients, you know, both large industrials, but also companies in, in other spheres of the economy. And uh, yeah, glad to be on your show today to share some of uh, these viewpoints. It's this this whole uh, issue and uh, discussion around energy crisis. It's an interesting one, I think, because it's not it's not as straightforward as it's all bad, is it? It's sort of layering on top of some issues that were already there. It also opens up perhaps some different opportunities in different ways. But for you, when you think about the conversations you have with clients, like what's the tone of it that you're hearing and what sorts of things are coming up when when they're really kind of discussing like impact of energy crisis? What are you hearing? Yeah. So I think uh, one first observation is that uh, before the crisis, uh, obviously, uh, I mean, as I explained, as NG Impact, we, we work on climate action. So we were a bit, you know, had a singular focus, I would say, on, on, on you know, just one of the three key dimensions in, in the, the, the famous energy trilemma. So just, just to remind you this, or just sustainability as one of these three, but next to that, you also have uh, security of supply and affordability. And most of our conversations we were having on, you know, how could you scale up some of the uh, proven technologies, of the, you know, the best available technologies to decarbonize, uh, you know, technologies that were in, in, in a way proven from an affordability standpoint. And all of the attention was on that. And so what we're now seeing is that there's a, um, there's this, uh, definitely there's a, this painful reminder that uh, we should uh, make a trade-off between these three dimensions. And uh, for sure now on the short term, uh, all, all focus with industrials is on security of supply, on affordability. Um, and so it's interesting, you know, for, from our perspective as NG Impact to also change a bit our perspective of how we should organize for this energy transition and how we, how we can accommodate these uh, short-term concerns on security and supply and affordability and, and still make sure that, that companies keep the right progress on the energy transition and, and eventually hitting their 2030 emission targets. I don't know about you, I, I sort of have been asked quite a lot by both friends, but also people in the sector, you know, is this going to mean that people back away from transition? Are they going to back away from decarbonisation? And I, I suppose that there must be some companies for whom that is the decision but I have to say most of our members and a lot of people we talk to it's not it's not really making them stop their work but 
I wondered, I wondered again, like, what, what do you make of that, you know, that common question of will this put an end to decarbonisation in some way? What, what's your sense of that? Well, I think for sure, again, there will be a, a short term negative impact. So you see, uh, you know, companies are, are switching to all sorts of alternatives. Uh, you know, you have, you have uh, the ones that are using now more uh, fuel oil and borders. You have uh, increased use of uh, diesel generators, uh, you know, for instance, for data centers. We see that happening a lot. There's uh, even uh, companies are <laughs> installing propane tanks. So, you know, on that basis, this is clearly the, the uh, like from, from the industrial sector. Um, we do see that there will be a short-term impact and, and switch back to uh, to oil uh, or oil derivatives. And uh, you know, as long as we we have this this price gap uh, between the LNG prices and and uh, you know these these oil prices, you will see that happening. Um, and I think on that basis, uh, I mean, there's even uh, estimates for that. So if if you look at um, uh, the estimates for for uh, oil demand uh, and, and increased, let's say, liquids demand from industrials, uh, they're expecting uh, about uh, 600,000 barrels per day increased demand in the, the first quarter of 2023. So that is significant, and 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 that's definitely a temporary uh, setback. That we, by the way, we also see in the, in, the, in the power generation sector, um, but there more the alternative now is, is coal. So uh, we've seen already in 21, by the way, that there was uh, an increase of a double digit increase in coal consumption. Um, in 2022, that trend will unfortunately continue. So it's, it looks like we are, um, we're back you know, to the, the record levels that we had almost a decade ago in, in 2013 in terms of coal consumption. So for sure, yeah, the, needless to say, this has a, a negative impact, uh, has a bump in, on the roads. Uh, but I do assume that all of this will be temporary and it's just a matter of time you know, before uh, speaking up for, for Europe, for instance, that we have uh, the new uh, LNG supplies coming in somewhere in the time frame 2024, 26. That part of this will uh, will uh, recover. So, um, so I, I think yeah. For you know, it, it just means that in the, the second half of this decade, uh, we'll have to find ways to uh, accelerate more, um, and that's definitely uh, that, that's definitely a, a key aspect to take into account. I think an interesting discussion maybe to have then, looking at the bigger picture, is is indeed the the, the role of nuclear. It's it's a very controversial one. Uh, but um, I, it's maybe good to just remind ourselves that if you look at the current installed base of nuclear, uh, and, and that's roughly globally about you know, 450 reactors, I think 40% of that was built actually as a, as a response to the previous crisis we had in the 70s. Uh, so, um, you know, building on that, we, um, we also see now that, uh, uh, again, in Europe, uh, some countries are, are taking decisions to postpone the closure of, of some reactors. Uh, even Germany uh, is, uh, is carrying over uh, some of its closure over the winter time. Belgium has just decided to prolong for 10 more years uh, you know, the, their two remaining reactors that were uh, set to close in 2025. So you see that's a temporary effect. But next to that, I, I feel there's also in general, still a couple of countries that believe that nuclear is the right way uh, to go. Um, and um, you have, I, for the moment, about 30 countries that are ac actually considering planning or preparing a build out of nuclear. Um, and among those, uh, you, you see that there are a couple of countries in Europe. There's notably, of course, France, UK, there's Poland, Estonia. We know that the Netherlands is, is investigating uh, new uh, nuclear reactors as well. So I think that, that that might set something in motion uh, where the role of nuclear and decarbonization scenarios may be revisited.
Yeah, on the, the modular reactors, our membership spans all types of hard to abate industries. So it's not just one in particular, but there's definitely been more curiosity about it. I, I don't know that I would say that I've heard people really sort of already planning to get it into the mix, but curiosity has certainly increased over the last kind of six to eight months about what role that that could play. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you look at their planning cycles, uh, you know, a lot of sectors are just one asset planning cycle away from 2050, actually. So it is normal that they're reflecting on, on the potential role of this, even though we know that that before 2030, you won't see any you know, commercial scale of deployments. Um, but uh, but I think it's it's especially the, the premium that will now be put on uh, on uh, the, the security of supply uh, on as well, uh, uh, you know, the, it has fairly and I, we have to see in terms of economics how <laughs> they'll play out. I wouldn't say they're predictable, but at least there, there's there's value in having potentially on-site solutions like this, where where you also less dependent on a, on a grid uh, to get the uh, renewable electricity and heat to your site. So remains to be seen. And uh, and uh, indeed, I think from an industrial side, like I say, there's there's definitely now a a, a much higher interest. And, and companies are, are willing to move into a kind of planning and feasibility stage uh, around these technologies. And coming back to the, the natural gas price itself, I mean, again, it's not as easy to just say that it's all bad. You know, there are some, I guess, possibilities. I know you'd mentioned in our prep call that the possibility of this may be pushing more energy market reform, even again, not necessarily a short term win for everyone looking at cost this winter. But can you can you speak a little more to that? Like what, what do you think one of the consequences of this price rise could be that, that might have a more positive outcome ultimately? So, of course, it's very hard to say something sensible about the, the price evolution. <laughs> I wouldn't dare to do that. But uh, but I think there's a bit of a general idea that that indeed this this um, like situation will at least for Europe again, will uh, will only get solved somewhere by 2025 uh, as as new supplies come in, and as of course uh, takes uh, the supply chain time to ramp up uh, to uh, to alleviate now these these constraints. It's already an interesting question. Like, okay, how as a business you make your 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 uh, your, your business cases for these investments? How do you price carbon in those? Um, and uh, there indeed, uh, we, I think we can have a discussion on. The, uh, the the gas versus the electricity market. And we, we we all know that the uh, the electricity market, first of all, is pricing carbon, uh, at least in Europe, is also uh, uh, highly uh, driven by the uh, most expensive generation asset, which happens to be, of course, gas <laughs> gas uh, um, gas based power plants. So. Uh, in, in that sense, there's there's a big discrepancy between the electricity pricing and the gas pricing today, uh, and um, and you see now voices being expressed that that maybe it's a good time to start rethinking this market framework and and make sure that we have a better decoupling of that electricity price from the gas price and that we also uh, finally get rid of this this bias of carbon pricing that we only see in the electricity prices and. Um, you know that there, I think there's already some where companies can can take a bit of a maybe proactive stance uh, in, uh, in 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 potential future regulatory change and start to price that carbon directly, uh, even if if it's if it's using you know gas directly as an input or even as a feedstock, just start to price that uh, and make sure that the, the 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 decisions you take and the investments you make are in that sense sufficiently future proof. 
and uh, and I would say just maybe a, a last thing on you know, fundamentally I don't think it changes anything to the energy transition because let's not forget a big part of the energy transition is is actually about substituting capital for fuel uh, if you look at all of the solution renewable uh, electricity uh, electrification um, on-site generation options like for instance a uh, biomethane if you have a you know certain waste product flow all of this is uh, allowing companies to get much more predictable economics because it's based on capex and not on a fuel you buy and and i think in general this crisis has just made that basic notion of the energy transition a lot more attractive so in that sense i think it it will this crisis is only helping in that sense uh to make the the business cases clear for for the energy transition something we've seen obviously in the last you know six six months or so is, is an increased level of regulatory uh, responses and particularly in the us what's um what's your kind of sense of how those play out in this this kind of slightly more intense um, environment um and the and the energy crisis so you know both the eu's uh, policy push the us what's what's your sense of how that that will either help or you know does it help i don't know no well, I think we have to distinguish two things. Then there's of, of course some short-term measures being taken. Uh, again, in the EU, uh, we, we see a lot of around uh, you know, pushing for more energy efficiency measures. There's uh, there's of course the uh, the question of uh, of um, you know taking a grab of windfall taxes. Uh, I uh, actually using windfall taxes to uh, to uh, redistribute you know some of the exceptional uh profits now to uh, to where we need that money to to bring relief to the, the the rest of the energy sector you know there's a solidarity contribution expected from the oil and gas sector so i think yeah that, that is something that is i think helpful to weather the the, the crisis on the short term um and uh and, and yeah we talk, we're talking big amounts i think the uh, eu uh, and britain together they're probably setting aside uh 500 billion to to support the energy sector so that's not uh not small money, and we're really talking about uh, easily uh, one to three percent of GDP being put aside to uh, to to uh, help on on the short term. So I think that is significant. I think it's important because uh, we should also not forget uh, a lot of these utility companies. Um, they've went already through a major crisis in the beginning of the the past decade. Uh, maybe we forgot, but uh, uh, don't remember that. Uh, don't forget that actually uh, um, around 2010 and years after uh a lot of the utility companies had to take massive write-offs on exactly their gas uh power plants uh because they were just pushed out of the market and 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 they were most of them were, were actually um it's maybe a bit ironic but we're operating on an uh, oil indexed uh, gas contract and they were simply being pushed out of the market by by all of this this spot purchases of of you know excess gas being uh, being delivered to to, uh, to europe so it's uh, it, it, I think it's good in general that there's a support for the sector. Um, we also have to be careful that it goes, doesn't go too far. And, and I think especially now, uh, some initiatives that we see in terms of price caps um, are a bit tricky. So we, we know that particularly for renewables and, and, and nuclear, uh, a lot of countries are, are looking at, at the price caps. You had, for instance, Spain that, that uh, very clearly also uh, putting a, a price cap on electricity coming out of a gas uh, power plant. So um, I, I think yeah, we have to be careful that, that we're not doing too much regulatory intervention 
uh, in that point because it's uh, it's a reality that it undermines investor confidence and 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 it only takes the next crisis to take again additional measures and 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 this is not good uh, you know to create the right investment climate and of course the the last thing about you know the regulatory intervention is uh, you know things like the the repower EU plan or the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act these and in, in, on itself do not necessarily change the the you know direction of travel uh but are helpful because i think they they bolster the ambitions for 2030 and and they mobilize more resources to to support the necessary investments and i think it's definitely uh positive and that that uh, eu for instance is is expanding its renewable targets you know from 40 to 45 percent by 2030 doubling biomethane uh, pushing uh, you know on hydrogen and actually tripling uh, the targets of uh of uh, hydrogen being available in Europe and also recognizing the need for, for hydrogen imports to Europe. So I think that's all positive, but in the end will probably uh, only help again in the second half of this decade. Uh, and I don't really seeing that any short-term relief. So. Well, as, as much as um, the industrials obviously do look for some kind of security of government intervention. I, I was interested when we were in the prep stage for this that you were seeing from your clients actually a kind of equal or perhaps even more of a, a push for self-sufficiency and this idea of you know how they can really uh, develop and, and how they're putting a premium on uh, self-sufficient solutions. Perhaps you could speak to that a bit more because I, I think this is a really interesting point and I, want, I think we've been hearing about projects that are associated this within our membership but not I didn't really understand that this was the concept that they were all part of so could you tell us a bit about that yeah sure so yeah, I think when you think of the the typical levers to to decarbonize um there are indeed some solutions uh that in in, in the current context you know have the uh, impulse from the business case side but but are also just the uh, the solutions that also can help you increase your security of supply and, and notably uh, which ones are those I think first of all of course there's a, there's energy efficiency that's in any context a good thing to do um, but uh, but there I think the current crisis is really helping uh, corporates to just accelerate and really change their investment approach to it uh, there's first of all I um, you know their ability to uh, to put lower lower thresholds. There's of course the current uh, gas prices that are, are helping the business cases. But I think that 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 corporates, you know, on the energy efficiency, also change their investment approach in general and and just be open to more innovative uh, financing and contracting models. And you know, maybe allow a greater role for third parties to come in and help them drive these savings. Uh, maybe even doing the investments on 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 behalf of the company. Um, and in the end, you know, help as a third party to mobilize resources on on, on bigger scale. Right? Because on energy efficiency, I still you know observe that that companies are trying to do that too much as a you know a bottom up side by side continuous improvement type of approach. I think they just need to be much more radical and much more top down in in, in structuring this, making it more programmatic, more repeatable, uh, and uh, and and just yeah, just avoid that you. Uh, uh, you try to do things uh, perfect, but they take uh, three. Uh, they take double the time. So uh, on energy efficiency, my my message would be uh, truly to you know find models to scale up more rapidly. Uh, and uh, every year you're you're implementing it sooner, it will uh, it will flow directly into your uh, bottom line. Um, but then next to that, you have a need. Uh, I think a second uh, second category is. Um, 
is on-site uh, renewables. Um, and um, yeah, if you think there's, uh, I've read somewhere a study that um, actually, if you look at current hedges, uh, the price of these hedges are sometimes even you know higher than the, the levelized cost of electricity of renewable projects. So, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, very easy to make the case to, uh, to double down on uh, on-site renewables. Um, and um, um, yeah, the fact that you, of course, uh, own your renewable assets, uh, uh, that's, uh, that's also um, a, a improving in general, so your, your long-time price security. Um, and, um, and there again, uh, I think it's, it's a question of how can you really scale that up more quickly? Um, it's, um, uh, it's in a way a bit of a challenging time as well, because we, we see it in terms of supply chains uh, the, or renewables. Uh, it, it is more complicated than it used to be. Uh, you know as well that it's still the pandemic is, uh, is, um, is uh, uh, disrupting supply chains, uh, for instance, from China. And, and there is, uh, you know, some supply uh, uh, concerns about solar panels and the like. Um, uh, and also, yeah, the, of course, Ukraine war is also not helping uh, because we know a lot of, you know, the steel, the copper, nickel, silicon are all coming uh, from uh, these regions. So it's also not to be underestimated what impact that has on, on the complete renewables uh, supply chain. But uh, regardless, I think... Um, We've seen, I, we've seen that those had an impact on the cost of renewables. And I think it's for the first time in the, in the past uh, you know, decades that we've seen now an increase in the, the price of renewables and the cost of renewables. So, um, but that should not you know, scare companies to move forward on it. Uh, I think it's still the right context to, um, to definitely invest in on-site renewables. Uh, and, uh, um, and indeed, yeah, for off-site renewables, it's a little bit more challenging market for the moment. I think both on the developer side, right? you see, uh, you see that is um, you know some um, some hesitation sometimes to to enter into these long term contracts, um, uh, and also for off takers, right? it's 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 a very right, difficult environment right now to agree on a on a fixed price uh, PPA for ten to fifteen years. I totally get that. So, I would say yeah, favor on site solutions where you can. Um, and then I think on, on the uh, off-site uh, renewables, uh, it's more a matter of, of being a bit more um, bit more creative, perhaps, on the contracting uh, and, uh, and, and find novel ways in dealing with these uh, price uncertainties. Um, but uh, right, renewables will remain, uh, for sure. And, uh, and, and yeah, definitely on-site renewables today is, is, is an area where you need to double down. Yeah. Uh, but for what it's worth, again, if I kind of reflect on what we hear from the members, um, it's that on-site renewables has sort of become a lot more interesting as the renewable energy storage solutions have also become more real. And we've, we're seeing more, uh, you know, a good handful of our members are now testing uh, various kind of renewable storage solutions of different types, which is just making it a lot more appetizing and a lot more kind of, uh, I guess, uh, consistent and reliable as a, a source for them too. Yeah, absolutely. I think on, on, on the team of storage, I think a bit related to that, two other technologies that we uh, we now see uh, actually uh, an increasing momentum is, uh, of course, first of all, electrification. Uh, I think there the uh, industrial heat pumps are, are proving its value. Uh, of course, you need to see for what applications you can use them, and, and it's definitely not a, a total solution. Um, but uh, typically, you know, in your processes, you have some areas where they can be of good value, especially if you're indeed combine them with an energy efficiency program. 
um, and if you combine them indeed with your on-site renewable sourcing project. So, but again, there we see that uh, supply chains are <laughs> again not not able to uh, completely cope with demand and. Uh, you know, you, you you had of course the, the the volatile raw material prices also impacting these supply chains. There's indeed shortages of of copper and silver and, and the like. So, um, but uh, I right now I would say uh, uh, engage definitely with uh, industrial heat pump manufacturers and and um, a bit secure secure your program. Uh, you know, for the coming years and and avoid that you end up. Uh, uh, you know, at the end of the queue, uh, so that you, <laughs> you literally end up the end of the decade to to uh, to scale up this technology. Um, but then electrification, so uh, indeed, it you know, can be combined with, for instance, thermal storage, and, uh, and 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 there's some good use of that. And that sense, I also want to mention, you know, maybe a bit of a less uh, less well like well known technology, but but again, we see, we see in the current crisis. Some uh, some increasing momentum, and that's on solar thermal. So it could be a use of flat plates or or parabolic troughs. Doesn't matter, but it's a uh, it's a technology that you that was used already quite a bit in the context of district heating. Um, but now we see more and more industrials that are adopting that as part of their uh, decarbonization pathways. And uh, and um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's proving you know in a lot of countries to be a affordable solution, uh, especially, you know, in countries where there's also uh, very often very good uh, reg uh, regulatory support with subsidy schemes. And uh, again, I think in, in the EU, there's a clear push now uh, to, um, to have more and more CapEx subsidies for solar thermal. So as an industrial, I would also recommend to start looking into these solutions. And even though they will play only a part of the solution mix, uh, it is the right time to, uh, to investigate them. So let's move into looking at some other solutions that people have been looking at. Um, your thoughts on the kind of biomethane and, and associated products, what's, what's your sense of their role, uh, given the context that we're talking about? Uh, yeah, so for biomethane, like I said, the EU uh, is, is doubling its ambition towards 2030. Um, Personally, I, I, I you know see a lot of, of uh, projects I'm doing. Uh, we uh, we truly see a, a good potential to uh, to uh, put bimethane uh, in the mix, and both, both on-site solutions, but but equally uh, off-site produced bimethane that is eventually put on the grid and made available for industrials. So uh, we we see that in, in a lot of cases, even without subsidies, uh, that is uh, one of the more affordable. Uh, ways to go. I'm not saying definitely not cheaper than nat natural gas in in, in the normal uh, market context, but uh, we see that uh, in the current context, uh, bimethane is uh, uh, you know we we I, we assume that can be produced somewhere as of 55 euros per megawatt hour. Of course, it depends on on the feedstock and 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 the specific project uh, uh, characteristics. It can be a lot higher as well, but it's. Um, it's definitely in the current context cheaper than natural gas, uh, and uh, in that sense, uh, definitely interesting to look at. Um, we believe that these conditions will probably last for a couple of years, and and then maybe indeed uh, the natural gas price might just dip below that uh, biomethane price. But again, it's it's one where in terms of security of supply, once you have your feedstock secured, um, you know technology is proven, you uh, you you put the insulation again on site, off site doesn't matter. Um, and at least uh, just like you have with, uh, with an offsite power purchase agreement, 
you have security on these economics and 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 that price for duration of of, uh, of this installation and that i think is is definitely in the current context very appealing but then just to conclude on bimethane that's just a problem of it the development cycle is long uh, three to five years for a new installation so again it will not bring short-term relief but it's absolutely now you know we need to use this current context as as the basis to to accelerate its deployment and so that you know we see in the second half of this decade as of 2025 a lot more bimethane installations coming uh, coming on uh, on stream um and then, yeah, next to biomethane is, of course, also uh, then biomass. Um, biomass I find a little bit difficult. Honestly, I don't have a clear opinion on on how is this crisis playing out for biomass. Um, we uh, what what we observe is that uh, again feedstock price for biomass are are, are also soaring and doubling in, in some areas. So that's definitely uh, not helpful. But it, it's it's uh, still making you know the the business case for biomass attractive. Um, so I think yeah on biomass I think the question is much more from a regulatory perspective. Uh, how how will biomass be accepted in the future? And then uh, I guess sort of two two of the kind of big <laughs> the the hotter topics in decarbonisation have been both CCS and green hydrogen, very different yeah. routes, very different solutions. Yeah. What I mean. You know, with, with the energy prices increasing, both of those obviously for different reasons sort of come under pressure. What what's your sense of does it affect the projects that are in play at the moment? Does it affect plans, or do you think it just affects the way that people report or assess risk on on what they have in motion? What, what's your gut feel there? Yeah. Well, I think on on, on green hydrogen. Um... I think in, in, in general there we we, we see a, a a push for acceleration um we i think from the affordability standpoint we we uh, nothing changes and we we knew that this solution would simply not be affordable before 2030 if not later so in that sense again no big change um what does change though is that now that we have this push on green hydrogen um we also for the first time Indeed, an EU policy start to you know seeing formally recognize the 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 needs to to build these these import supply chains of green hydrogen. I, I think it means that um, it will be a lot harder for alternatives to uh, to to come in. And and I think that the true loser of the crisis is for sure blue hydrogen for obvious reasons uh, because because it's a it's a natural gas based. Um, so the economics. Are, are less appealing um, but there's also just the general question around CCS where even before the crisis uh, we've uh, we've seen that the, the there was definitely no consensus around the role of CCS and and decarbonization and uh, we always have to distinguish of course uh, fuel related emissions versus process emissions I think for process emissions indeed CCS uh, is, is still valid to look at as a, as a solution as long as there's no alternative production method available that that avoids these process emissions in the first place but i think for ccs on on, on let's say fuel related emissions that was already hard before the crisis in terms of affordability scalability regulatory support so uh i think with the current crisis that 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 outlook only worsens uh um, so there, I would not expect any uh, any uh, any change. Um, really, for me, is the the question. Okay, on the on the process emission side, 
what's the future of CCS? Um, I think it's probably a little bit too early to judge that um, because uh, it would not be the, the first thing that industrials would tackle. And I think it's a question that we have to revisit somewhere in the second half of this decade where we see that role for CCS. Well, so that, that brings me to my, my last question, which, which is sort of the big elephant in the room when you're talking about the energy crisis at the moment. There are plenty of uh, industrials talking about perhaps sites that will have to close for a period of time or that may even close full stop. You know, there, there are these sort of bad news <laughs> bad news bears lurking what's what's your kind of gut feel about d does the current energy crisis really really force a, a massive change to any of these industrials or uh yeah that's indeed a a, a tough question um i think again before the energy crisis there was clearly already uh, a lot of uh strategic reflections being made on, on what is the right location in the future to produce uh, certain uh, industrial products. Um, and I think even before the crisis, uh, in a way, Europe was already, uh, if you look at from an energy cost standpoint, uh, of course, uh, at, at a handicap. Huh? Uh, I mean, US benefited from its shale boom. Uh, you always have the Middle East that has a favorable uh, position. Uh, there was, of course, the uh, the, the the cheaper Russian uh, uh, um, fossil fuels as well um, that we uh, we uh, you know temporarily benef benefited from in, in Europe. Um, but so I think that the trend on on energy costs uh, has not changed. I think it, it now just put it in, in a much stronger spotlight. Uh, what differences we have, um, and likely what differences we continue to have and and i think this this gap in, in energy cost competitiveness will will have widened um and in that sense i think the um you know a lot of the debate on, on level playing fields uh, in europe was was focused on on the cost of carbon and and, and that's where you have the initiatives of the the carbon border adjustment mechanism and the like i think these are i very important initiatives to have and, and definitely need to create that level playing field on the carbon price side. But the reality is that it won't fix the, 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 the level playing field on, on the energy cost side. And that's where I believe that uh, you know, eventually I, I would not be surprised to see that you know, these economics will, will continue to shift some of the uh, industrial activity away from Europe. I'm thinking of uh, especially some of these you know primary uh, industrial activities like like iron making but also upstream you know chemical uh, production like fertilizers etc that that we'll see a bit of a shift going on there uh, you know out of europe uh, towards other regions well i think that's a good <laughs> a good and thoughtful point probably to to wrap up i think we've covered a lot of good ground there. Um, ben, thank you so much for coming on and for talking us through quite quite a few different levers um, that are around in this discussion. Um, and anybody who would like to talk to Ben, we will make sure that his contact details are in the show notes. Um, but yes, thank you. Thank you once again. Thank you very much. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, 
our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.